In the most recent painting I did, Moss Rose, I went back and looked at the radial composition. And how I did that painting is I approached the background the way I usually do. And then I used a very kind of gestural, spontaneous flicking of color onto the background. And that kind of gave me a sense of how those radial patterns would be positioned in the composition. So I, I really enjoyed that one because I'm combining like a really disciplined methodology to applying the paint, but I'm also allowing a lot of chance and gesture and spontaneity to come into it, which I find to be really exciting when I'm painting. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 236th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Jill Christian, who spoke with me from Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she lives and works and makes paintings. We talk all about that, of course, but I do want to note that Jill was selected by our juror, Brian Frank, a few years back as one of our pro competition winners. So we're very excited to feature her work and to talk all about it. It has some roots in landscape, and we talk about that as well as the figure and how a lot of those ideas get applied to her painting. She works a lot with mark making and gesture, and we talk all about how that's organized in a variety of different explorations, intuitive painting, as well as the grid, and all of that good stuff is coming up, so please stay tuned for that. But I do want to direct you to check out Jill's website, jillchristian.com, and also go and follow her at Jill Christian Studio on Instagram. I am excited to announce that our 2020 Pro Competition is now open. Our juror Liz Tran will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition is open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. Again, the deadline for this is November 1st. If you want to check out more about Studio Break, head on over to studiobreak.com. Again, each of our artist posts there have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and you can, of course, listen right in the default player or subscribe to the podcast, so please check that out. You can also find a big archive there as well, so lots of artists that you might have missed out on. Please like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course, Follow us on Instagram at studio underscore break. And with those announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Jill Christian. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Jill Christian. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, I know. Again, you kind of been very patient <laughs> waiting in the, <laughs> in the wings. You were one of our uh, pro competition winners back in 2018. Mm -hmm. We were kind of reminiscing about that. Brian mm -hmm. Frink picked out your work and we were yes. talking about the wonderful water relationships. So <laughs> it'll be interesting <laughs> to dive into that and learn more about that. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to it. 
Well, you know, I love learning about backgrounds. So you grew up in Massachusetts, is that right? I did. I did. I grew up just west of Boston in Concord, Massachusetts. And I spent all through high school in that town. Interesting. And was it just kind of like suburban or, you know? Yes, very suburban, a really beautiful town to grow up in. It is a historical town. It was the Battle of Lexington Concord, the Old North Bridge, Louisa May Alcott, Walden Pond, Thoreau. So I really grew up surrounded by that history, Eastern Seaboard history. Also, a lot of exposure to transcendentalism in high school, you know, reading Thoreau. And yeah, so it was it was a really beautiful place to grow up. Interesting. You know, again, I'm as somebody that has traveled to Massachusetts and certainly Boston, mm-hmm. you know, I like the idea of having like a history, you know, I think about mm-hmm. where I grew up and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's not so much uh, that that semblance, um, you know, certainly yeah. not li- with the idea of uh, transcendentalism. Oddly enough, it seems like, you know, you mentioned something about that in your uh, background a little bit, you know, your mm-hmm. relationship to water. Is that something that was like kind of on your conscience or like thinking about your place, I guess. Yes, I, I think that it was something that uh, when I was younger, I I didn't think about it overtly. It was in the background, but I think that it did kind of seep into my consciousness. I also was lucky enough, my father was really into boating, and he eventually became boat captain after he retired from, from flying for the airlines. And so I just grew up spending a lot of time on the water. We would often on the weekends go out on the boat, go fishing, go sailing. So I think that just that sense of being outdoors, being really in touch with my surroundings, just was, I think, a part of growing up for me. And again, I didn't I didn't consciously think about it, but you know, it was there influencing me in the background. Well, I can imagine too, like trying to make uh, drawings uh, while <laughs> while you're cruising along a lake or, <laughs> or something like that would be a little difficult. But yeah, that, I think that sense of openness is interesting. I'm yeah. recently uh, one of my friends has taken me out on the boat, mm-hmm. and it is kind of mm-hmm. like an interesting experience to kind of see, you know, just like your horizon fill up with you know trees and water and sky. Yep. Also, I I think growing up where I did in the suburbs, there was woods right near where my house was. And I had a lot of freedom. So I was able to really go walking by myself in the woods. And I remember pretty young that bringing a sketchbook with me and um, just going out and exploring and and stopping and drawing things as I was as I was walking through the woods. That's interesting. You know, again, Kind of like I was saying, there's some artists that don't know they're artists until they become failed musicians or, you know, something <laughs> like that. So it sounds like you're always kind of working on, on something then, drawing and making. Yeah, I, I was. I was from a very young age. I think that I I didn't really know that being an artist per se was a possibility, mm-hmm. but it was an interest from a very young age. In fact, when I was preparing for our talk, I I was remembering how I must have been maybe six or seven. And my mother, I remember my mother getting me this Quran Darsh set of colored clay. And it, I think it had like 48 colors. Mm. (laughs) And I just remember being 
just so thrilled with that and carefully keeping all the colors separate. <laughs> I made my little things and putting them back into the rectangles of clay. So, sure. yeah, so, uh, yeah, I was, I was always doodling, drawing, interested in art. And was that something that your parents were like supportive of or were they... And again, obviously that, that changes at various points in life, you know, when people see that you're very serious about it, but like growing up through like grade school, did you take classes or high school take classes? I did. I did. My parents were incredibly supportive. I did take classes throughout school. In middle school, I got put into something. I don't think that they're doing it anymore, but it was in the, that would have been the seventies. Uh, it was called project art band. So I had this really unique experience. A few, a few students were selected to be paired with professional artists. Mm-hmm. And so once a week after school, I would get on one of those little mini buses and they would, the school would drive us to the artist's home. And I got paired with a fiber artist So there was a semester in middle school where I got to go and work in a studio of a real live artist. (laughs) Wow, that's really cool. That was really exciting. And I think that that had an influence on, on me thinking about wanting to be an artist. I don't know that my parents were overtly supporting me, like going to art school, Mm -hmm. even, even myself, I, I did not even consider going to art school. So when I when I chose to go to college, I was actually first interested in international relations. And I went to school in Washington, D.C. for two years. And then I left and worked for a little bit. And then I ended up applying to UMass Amherst. And it was when I went out there, I originally was wanting to major in English. And then I kind of fell into taking classes in the art department. And then at that point, I, I, with the encouragement of one of my, my professors, I applied to be a major. And I think that was the real, really the first time I thought, you know, maybe I'm going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that set it off? I mean, did, like, did you just have to take a gen ed and then it was like, wow, I really miss doing this or it wasn't even that it was just that I I had always even when I went to school in DC I I made sure to take one art class a semester I had in the back of my mind maybe I would minor in it and then what happened when I went to UMass I automatically like I was not going to be in a semester without an art class (laughs) so I took a painting class and it was that professor who encouraged me And then when I applied for the minor, I got accepted as a major. So they they wrote me and they said, you know, we will accept you as a minor. But if you wanted to be a major, (laughs) that's okay, too. (laughs) Sure, sure. And so I just went for it. I said, okay, well, someone's telling me something. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, and I'm always curious too. those like, you know, formative years, Mm -hmm. I guess, in terms of making like, were you, you know, someone that was interested in kind of working representationally and then, you know, that Mm -hmm. maybe normal transition of, you know, working towards abstraction happened or, you know, what kind of things did you make back then? Oh, definitely. I was primarily a figurative painter in my undergraduate work. I 
was, of course, naturally you do a lot of figure drawing, figure painting. So that that was my thing. I was very interested in the body, working very gesturally. Well, that makes sense too, in terms of like all the mark making that you use. Yes. Again, I, I should remind everybody it's uh, jillchristian.com. So there's plenty of work to, to check out there. So when you look back on that experience, was it all kind of pretty representational? What did you, you know, leave that experience making, I guess? You know, it's interesting because my, my painting in undergrad, you know, other than the beginning classes where you do the figure drawing and the figure painting, when I got into the upper level undergrad classes, I immediately went more abstract. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, I was really very interested in abstract expressionism. And so looking at people like de Kooning, for example, and how he abstracted the figure, that was a big influence on me. So although I was working figuratively, it was already very abstract and very much about gestural mark making. And the figure was really kind of the excuse for painting. So you're working, you know, kind of through mark making and, mm-hmm. you know, the figure, is that kind of like what turned into your, your thesis or capstone? Again, they have a different name for it. It seems like everywhere. So, <laughs> yeah. So I did a BFA thesis and, um, it's, it's so funny having you ask these questions. I haven't thought about this. So <laughs> sure. I'm like, what happened? Yeah. So actually thinking back now that you're asking that question, my BFA thesis was, completely abstracted and I was working a combination of figure and landscape figure interior environments and at that point yeah it became completely abstract it was about shape mark making the rhythms of the shape together on the canvas yeah thanks for reminding me of that Again, well, I think it's interesting too. I feel like you forget you forget this information too, in some uh-huh. ways, or you just kind of put it out of your mind, and you're like, "Oh, I did that," you know. I made sculptures, like that was weird. You know, I'm curious then too. Was it something then where you kind of had like a, a big plan in mind in terms of like what you're going to do afterwards? Well, that was kind of interesting. I think that a lot of people have this experience. I graduated in let's see, it was '92, and Gosh, I had no instruction during school about what to do after school. And so I naively put my portfolio together based on my my schoolwork and ran around to galleries <laughs> and promptly got rejected, sometimes nicely, sometimes curtly. And uh, yeah, so I, I had a period where I didn't quite know what to do next. Yeah, that was a really difficult period right after undergrad. I ended up, uh, you know, getting a job and I kept painting, but I went through a period where I I just didn't know how to approach like being an artist and making a living as an artist. Too, I think, you know, being young, just graduating from undergrad, I I think I also had a very kind of romantic, naive (laughs) view of what what that might look like. Well, and I think that's kind of the choice that a lot of people wind up making. You know, again, I was just working on an edit yesterday where somebody was kind of like, you know, I knew that 
you know, working in a cubicle or something like that wasn't going to mm-hmm. necessarily be for me, or maybe they couldn't kind of do another job, you know? So yep. to kind of have something that you feel kind of creatively driven towards seems like happy, happier life as opposed to, I guess, a, a life where you can <laughs> comfortably pay <laughs> rent, you know? So, so did you kind of work in that field or did you kind of do other things or? You know, because obviously, you know, there's there's, um, you know, a number of other opportunities and and things that have come your way since then. But I'm just kind of curious. So was it art related that you were working or just kind of? No, no. The interesting thing is I I ended up not working in the arts at all. I, I started out one of my first jobs after college. I worked for Dana Farber Cancer Institute. I was an administrator in their infectious diseases laboratory. Mm -hmm. And I actually found that fascinating. I helped uh, a lot of the grad students and post-grad students put together grant applications and scientific papers. And I just, I just found that fascinating. (laughs) I loved, I loved working with researchers. Yeah. So that was my, my first real job. And then from there, I left uh, Massachusetts in, I believe it was 94. So I was looking for the next thing, and a friend was moving to New Mexico. So I left that job and got into my truck and drove down to New Mexico <laughs> with my friend. <laughs> Yeah, and then after that, I just I just had various jobs, but again, I, it's kind of interesting to me that my jobs were mostly in technology and not in the arts. One of my next major jobs was working for a company that did medical lasers. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and again, <laughs> I love learning about science too, so I think that it, it doesn't seem that weird to me that I would be attracted to having jobs like that and working with people that are developing things and researching. And now I work for a software development company. And I think there's a lot of creativity in that. I, I, I don't do software development myself, but I, I think I like working with people that do that. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it, and it makes sense too, relative to that kind of uh, mentality that you might have around other, you know, students or people that are kind of, mm-hmm you know, like you said, researching or kind of developing something. So that energy is probably still, you know, pretty mm-hmm. present in that. Well, so what brought you back to, to study marketing? I ended up getting an MBA mm-hmm. um, before I got my MFA. And that was kind of interesting. Sometimes I, <laughs> I make spontaneous decisions that have actually been kind of building up in the background. So I was, I was working at the medical laser company, I was working as uh, an executive assistant and I just kind of thought, you know, while I'm doing this, let's explore this and really get, get into this and maybe even advance in my job a little bit. So I ended up um, doing an MBA with a marketing concentration and uh, I think that was a really good experience. I'm glad I did that, but I continued to work in I would say small startups is where I, I like to work the most. So I just got to a point where I, I was still painting and there was just always this nagging, like, 
what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Right, right. What are you going to do with this? What, what's, what's next with this? I don't know, fast forward to 2009. And for a couple years, I had really been thinking about getting my MFA. And I, I pulled the trigger in 2009 and started an MFA program. And it was about really wanting to recommit to being a painter, recommit to being an artist. And I, I felt like I had been kind of drifting away from that and was really missing it. If that makes sense. Oh no, absolutely. You know, I'm curious, you know, were you going to openings? Were you, or were you just kind of, you know, making paintings and, you know, not showing anybody or. I was painting and um, I was, I was, showing i was showing in smaller local venues restaurants coffee shops a friend of mine had a small gallery so i I was showing but i wasn't real serious about it if that makes sense i was painting but i didn't have a really consistent studio practice so i was producing work but I felt like I was stuck at kind of a level and really was wanting to get a more consistent work practice and to spend more time with it. That would mean almost as simple as that. I just, I wanted to be doing it more and spending more time making paintings. Well, I think again, a lot of people that start MFA programs, it's literally you know, kind of like how you describe graduating. And then it's like, I'm working at a coffee shop or I'm, you know, I worked, yeah. you know, like I say repeatedly, I worked at Hobby Lobby. So it's like, you're mm-hmm. like, <laughs> what do I do? I guess I have to go to graduate school. So I would, I would imagine too, then though, that to kind of make that choice after, you know, while you're having a career, you know, mm-hmm. it's got to be really exciting to dive back into that and to, you know, make the most out of that opportunity. Was it really exciting when you started? Oh, it was. Yes, it was. It, and at that point, too, you know, you get you really get to a point where I, I made the commitment to go and it just felt like a gift to be able to to do that, to be with other artists in the program. Yeah, it was it was just it was amazing. And it was really, really exciting. And I guess, you know, because there's some some gap in there, I mean, the work that you brought in there, I mean, was it kind of similar to, you know, maybe the work that you'd be more known for in terms of, you know, like all the, you know, mark making, abstraction, things like that, or? So the work I brought in, it was um, more gestural abstraction than what I'm doing now. Mm Mm-hmm. There was still some remnants of the figure in there, some landscape, definitely abstract. It was still along the kind of de Kooning, Cicely Brown influence. Mm. Sure, sure. <laughs> and was there like any particular classes that you started taking that kind of jettisoned some of that or maybe brutal critiques where they're like enough of enough (laughs) of this very clear i could not keep painting the way i was painting you know it's grad school for right sure sure (laughs) starting over so to clarify something too i went to a low residency program oh okay it was called the art institute of boston they have rebranded and changed their name to the leslie university 
College of Art and Design. It was a low residency program, and that was really wonderful for for a couple reasons. One, I was able to keep my job. It was really hard because (laughs) juggling both was, was quite daunting. But the second reason it was so great is that the way the format of the program worked was you would go for intensive 10-day residencies in Boston. So you would bring your work up to Boston, you would have intensive critiques, you would work with your advisor. There were also students from all over the country, all over the world who would come together. And many of them were in a similar circumstance to me. They, they might have regular job, they were a little bit older, so a lot of them were teachers looking to get a, an advanced degree, perhaps become professors. There was just so many different people from all over bringing their own experiences into these really intensive 10 days. And then the, when you were back in your hometown, you would seek out an artist mentor. So over the course of my program, I got to work with four different working artists and I would meet with them in their studio once a month for critiques. So I really got a lot out of this program because there were so many different people that you could get feedback from, get advice from, really different perspectives. And for me, that that just that just worked out, I think, much better than being in a program with the same group for a number of years. Well, I, I always I always thought those opportunities sounded really interesting, you know, and I've talked to people about that who, you know, are in that position where they have like a really good job, but they don't, you know, necessarily want to quit their job and then move, you know, to some remote location for three years. <laughs> And you had asked me about the painting, right? (laughs) So being in the MFA program, that was also really interesting as far as how I changed throughout the program. So I went in there painting very gesturally, abstract, and I had some tough critiques on that. I was painting kind of like all over and very similar marks, so... I had a lot of pressure to change things up, explore different ways of making marks. So it was, it you know, grad school can be tough. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, too, is, and it's hard to kind of always um, visualize what somebody's work looks like as they're describing it, you know, and as, you know, many artists have talked to me about, you know, they kind of try to bury this, you know, so it's never to be seen again, almost, you know. I would imagine then, you know, you started, you know, working almost kind of like, again, with, with this kind of almost like textural brush marks, but then, you know, there's like a interesting like way it's maybe organized. And again, I'm maybe thinking about some of the older work on your website that kind of relates maybe to when you kind of wrapped up this program. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah. So during the course of the program, what ended up happening is I really had to think about what it was about brushwork that was of interest to me. And when I started the program, I was still hanging on to 
at that time it was landscape. I was using the landscape a lot as inspiration for my painting. And what I really started to do was just peel everything away and simplifying. So I don't want to say that I was being belligerent or, but I finally got frustrated and said, you know what? I'm making these all over paintings. It's about brushwork. So I'm going to dive into this. And so I really pared it down. I started working based on the grid and just the paintings were just about the brushstroke one after another applied meditatively. And it was really about how an individual brushstroke next to the next, next to the next, all the little variations that can happen. And I always thought of those, even though they were so simple, so pared down, I still think of them as gestural paintings. If you're looking at my website, that's where that early gridded work comes from. It, it really just became about the mark making. And I remember one of my professors saying something about, you know, your work seems to be this overlay of marks and it's kind of like this thicket of paint. And what if you think about the mark as the subject of your painting? And that was, that was the little nugget that, that I took away. And then another, another professor had talked to me about thinking, his words were to think more constructivist. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I started to look at, you know, okay, so how do I structure the painting? If it's not a landscape, if it's not a figure, what is the st- structure that holds these marks together. And for me, it ended up being the grid. Well, and it's interesting too, because some of the, you know, works that I think hopefully we're talking about is around the 2011, 2012 Mm -hmm. period when you're kind of wrapping that experience. But, you know, the way that the marks kind of slowly shift up and down or, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that I would imagine there's variations or overlays of color, it it kind of creates this really amazing surface of... Mm -hmm some colors being like warmer, kind of shifting slightly cooler and a lot of kind of like monochromatic kind of paintings Mm -hmm. too. Definitely. Definitely. And I mean, is that something that you started developing too then in in terms of layers? Because again, I'm always looking at stuff and wondering, you know, like how, you know, how is this kind of worked through? So for one of these, you know, paintings, which again are kind of like a pretty medium size, you know, up to, I guess, almost like four feet Mm-hmm. Are you kind of like working in stages or maybe kind of describe this? I know, again, we've got to get to other work, but I would imagine there's some commonalities that exist. Yeah. So the way I approached those was I start with a field of color. So I have in mind in general where I'm going with the color. And again, I'm still pulling influences from the landscape. I'm looking at the sky, I'm looking at the colors around me. So I do a field of color. And I actually spend quite a bit of time layering that. And I keep layering color until I intuitively just feel that it's the color I want to start with. And that becomes the base of the painting. And then In those, anyway, it was all about really close color shifts. So then I 
you know, mix up the colors that are going to form the brush strokes. And then I start applying them just like you would write across. And um, it's really a one shot deal at that point. I just I start at the corner and go across and that's it. I really very rarely unless I make some kind of horrible mm-hmm. like I trip sure, <laughs> sure. flies down the canvas. Um I just I just keep going and during that process I intuitively shift the colors. It's really not a like a programmatic mm-hmm. application. It, it it's really kind of like what what feels like the best color to come next yeah there's a real like luminous kind of quality that almost kind of reminds me of the way that you see like light coming through stained glass almost you know mm-hmm. thank you i'm curious too like is that something like you're maybe kind of describing i mean i would imagine you must have like for for these older works anyways you know they're they're oil I would just imagine that you just have like a giant, giant, giant palette of you know color that you're mixing up to try to run out. But I don't, I don't know. Was that something like? I know that you said you didn't really like a formula, but I mean, was that something that you had to kind of consider in terms of you know just keeping the color consistent or? Um, you know, I think that <laughs> I probably should have thought of that, <laughs> but I didn't. No. So what I would do is I have one of those larger butcher trays. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll do is I'll mix up a fairly large amount of paint in there. But I do have to add, because I'm working, I kind of resist rules, which (laughs) is a little contradictory to the way the painting looks. Mm -hmm. But um, and I would I would sometimes like mix right on the palette. So I would just like shift in a little blue. And sometimes you can even see that the paintings and you might have to see them in person to see the subtle shifts but as you work down the painting sometimes the painting does shift in color and i actually liked that effect because it again added a little bit of intuition and spontaneity to something that was otherwise very kind of rote and just applying the paint i think one of the other things that i maybe hadn't thought of either you know you've talked about like some of these you start looking at and you think of the way that skies look at different times, you know, and it makes me think of just time in general. So I like the idea of that slow shift Mm -hmm. kind of relating to that idea of passage of time or even almost like the way, like, I don't think we talked about this, but almost like the way, like I think of like an Agnes Martin kind of, you know, work in terms of just kind of working through it or kind of thinking about that passage of time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because like, again, there's, you know, some, you know, more explorations that kind of keep kind of working through that in in the following years. But, you know, for example, this piece from 2014 called The Cloud, you know, starts to kind of bring in more, you know, contrasting colors and, you know, maybe more variety within that. And is that something that is, you know, like you kind of burn, (laughs) maybe burn out um, on something or you just, oh man, I want to try bringing this other thing in or? That's, Definitely what happens. So I still enjoy making those gridded paintings, but it became a question of, okay, what's next? Right. <laughs> and because I was interested in the, the marks, I really wanted to start thinking about, okay, like if this is about the marks and the color and the color shift, what are the other ways that 
these marks can be applied to evoke different feelings or approach the subject in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I started to think about really varying that mark making. And, you know, I think that sometimes something runs its course. And, you know, I think I got to a point and thought, well, <laughs> I'm not sure what's next. So maybe I shouldn't make another one of these for a while. <laughs> well, it's really interesting to see the shift that kind of comes from this work as as we kind of moved forward towards like the, there's some works even from 2015 that mm-hmm. totally kind of changed direction, but then some of them feel like, you know, almost like topographical, but they, mm-hmm. you know, really start breaking that grid and they, I don't know, it's like this undulating you know, surface. And I'm sure that you probably get, uh, get it a lot relative to talking about water, but you know, some mm-hmm. of them take on that topography of like looking down on water. Yeah. So you can kind of see that real, you know, shift there. That's definitely what I was, was thinking about thinking about the, I want to call them atmospheric effects. It's a little weird to apply that to water, but I do think about kind of the atmosphere of the water, that fluidity, and definitely that's what those paintings were were inspired by and looking at and yeah, breaking out of the grid too. And then I started to do some radial patterns. I was interested in that. But for me a big a big breakthrough came in twenty twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. I had this really nice experience. I went up to Anderson Ranch in Colorado. And I had an advanced painting workshop with an artist named Wendy White. And during the workshop time, I ended up just making paintings that were individual marks that stood out by themselves. So instead of applying a single brush stroke one after the next, I would make a shape and that became a mark and those paintings were a lot about the space between the marks and there was a lot of air between them and that was really a breakthrough for me these are the ones from the affinity series yes yes it's really interesting to see the kind of shift Mm -hmm. it looks like some of them are still on a very large scale as well so Mm -hmm. it's got to be kind of interesting to think about that that shift for you and there's still kind of like a monochromatic aspect to them as well Mm -hmm. in in this series especially i find that i do that a lot when i start i start a new idea i like to go back to the monochrome working black white gray somehow it helps me to kind of isolate what i'm thinking about in terms of the mark making because i feel like Color is kind of like another layer on top of that, and it does different things. It's interesting. I often find that I, I, I go back to the black and white when I'm starting something new. Is this like your kind of way of just kind of making it fresh still? Like, you know, that idea of just trying something new and, and seeing where it kind of fits in? Because, again, it's it's interesting. They almost look like this, you know, obviously like giant blow up almost of, you know, what you were mm-hmm. making before, like a, a tiny mm-hmm you know, segment of some of these patterns and seeing all the space in between and, you know, even some of the ground kind of showing through differently. Is that just a way to kind of feed your, your work and continue making? Yeah, it was a way to 
you know, approach the subject from a different angle, like to, again, like I, I was really wanting to break out of the grid. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to keep making work about marks. And this was a way to do a lot of exploration about that. And I, I made a, a lot, sure. <laughs> a lot of paintings during this time. And also one thing that this did is I had been missing in the painting process, the physicality of painting gesturally. So these paintings allowed me to bring that really enjoyment of working with the paint back into into my work and just free it up a little bit. You know, some of those gridded paintings, very meditative, but also very tight. It requires a lot of concentration. They're they're physically taxing. And so these 2017, 28 paintings were really about bringing like the, just the joy of just feeling the brush moving around a shape. And I would imagine that you're working on, you know, it sounds very prolific. See, that sounds, but imagine that you're working on a bunch of these then to kind of keep, yes. keep that open. And, you know, you've got all sorts of paper tacked everywhere and. <laughs> yep. Working on paper fast. That feels wonderful, you know, to make something fast. And if it works great, if it doesn't, it's on paper. You just turn it over, use it as scrap paper. Sure, <laughs> sure. Make a collage. <laughs> <laughs> Is this what kind of led into the monoprints? Because they seem to really have that, that gestural quality that you're talking about. So this is the the work that I have in my Prince flat file folder on my website. Mm-hmm. So I had the, another really great experience. I got accepted to a Tamarind workshop. And so what I did was in 2019, uh, Tam- Tamarind is this really wonderful lithography studio and school that's attached to the University of New Mexico. So I worked with two student printmakers and I spent two weeks there making lithography to two lithographs with them. And during that time, I also had the opportunity to do a few monoprints and that was another really wonderful experience. I, I haven't unfortunately been able to do monoprints recently, but again, the monoprints allowed me to really loosen up a lot and think about different ways of of, of making marks. I have always loved the spontaneity of monoprinting. Lithographs that I, I did when I was there, that's the one called Blue Swerve and Tarn. That was a really interesting process too. And I loved it. It was so wonderful to work with these two artist printmakers. And uh, I think that weirdly though, lithography, I didn't find to be very freeing. It was, it was a very challenging process because I'm so used to putting down a mark seeing what it looks like and responding to that. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's this time lag and also, you know, you're working in black and white 
on the plates and you have to wait. <laughs> sure. So it was it was it was a really great experience to go through that process though and work collaboratively on something. That was that was a first for me. I'd love to do it again. Yeah. Well, and it, it makes sense in relationship to the the mana prints like this one called mm -hmm. Sweet Blue. Again, it looks like there's one that has like a ghost image as well of that. Yeah. I mean, it's just lovely. So I would imagine, again, that, that kind of spontaneity is something you could easily bring to that because essentially it's like a one-shot, right? I mean, like a monoprint. Yeah. So there's no uh, print matrix. I think that's what they call it. I'm, I feel mm -hmm. like an artist today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> again, there's that kind of like looseness to those, those uh, print works and some of the gestural painting that seems to find its way into the, the more recent work. Mm -hmm. So maybe kind of describe how that that. I guess, impacted your more recent work? So the more recent work I did, it's a series based on flowers, actually, still very abstract. But the way I kind of see these evolving is it's like the loose monochromatic work I did in 2017, meeting the, the grids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With the added benefit of that experience with loosening up during the mono printing. So what I've done in these is really combined more of a looseness to both the composition and the mark making and also allowing more, more space, more breathing room, more opportunity for the background to start to show through and have a character. A lot of my previous work really covered everything up. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time on the background only to completely obscure it. And, and these really, the background is now becoming part of the composition as, and is really providing a lot of texture and color and space and air. And the other thing about some of these, like the, the ones, the Argamon, Artemisia, and uh, Achillea, those are the three floral paintings. I started to think about the decorative. You know, that was something that always came up in conversation during grad school about abstract work. And I remember one of my professors even mentioned pattern and decoration. And I thought, no, that's, that's, not, that's not where I'm kind of going with this. But in these, I really kind of wanted to embrace this idea of the decorative with these flowers. They're not supposed to be wallpaper, but they kind of seem a little bit like that. Like it, it's like the, it just marks on a field. And I just, I just really wanted to embrace that. Still concerned about the individual brush marks, but now they're kind of more, more suggestive maybe of something literal. Yeah, I like the way that some of the, you know, colors and, and marks kind of almost blend back into that background mm -hmm. so that there's, again, like you were maybe saying a little bit more depth, a little bit more space that kind of, you know, definitely breaks up, you know, that kind of grid from, from years previous, you know, I mean, and again, the color range is bolder and really kind of exciting to kind of, kind of look at. I would imagine like you're kind of describing like, yeah, giving it a lot of breathing room. So. Yeah. And the most recent painting I did, Moss Rose, I went back and looked at the radial composition. And how I did that painting is I approached the background the way I usually do. 
And then I used a very kind of gestural, spontaneous flicking of color onto the background. And that kind of gave me a sense of how those radial patterns would be positioned in the composition. Mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoyed that one because I'm combining like a really disciplined methodology to applying the paint, but I'm also allowing a lot of chance and gesture and spontaneity to to come into it, which I find to be really exciting when I'm painting. Since you were using the grid before with some of your previous yeah. work, I'm curious how they're kind of planned or, you know, what, you know, if you're sketching, if you're taking photographs or if it's all kind of work that you're making, you know, while you're, while you're just making the work and committing to, to working through it. No, I don't, I don't plan it out beforehand. Uh, again, it, it's a lot of the prep work I do is again, working on that background color. It's still probably the most important base for everything. And then I used to use the grid and and now I'm introducing like I said more more s spontaneity and I will sometimes just gesturally put down some marks and that is where the composition comes from so in other words like with moss rose I gesturally painted some marks on top of the background I had painted mm -hmm. and even did some flicking of the colors. And then I used that as the structure on which I, I started the, the mark making. And are the colors kind of all based then on that, that background color and then responding to it? Yes. Yes. And then I often will shift the color intuitively based on what is what has already been put down. So I, I start with an idea of the color and an idea of, you know, this is going to be a radial design or this is going to be a looser radial design. And then from there, as I work, I respond to what's there. Most of the time I I keep to a pretty tight color range, but recently I've been exploring with more, I think you said this earlier, like more, you know, more bold colors, more contrasting colors, mm -hmm. more analogous and complementary colors mixed together. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you got paint chips all over or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's it's interesting because like I I think that you know there's just so many things that we pull from you know so I'd imagine there's some of it that's just built off the language that you've been building for for years and then also you know that uh, desire to kind of change things up and to explore new territory. Yeah, and I've been very influenced by flowers, like I said, especially recently. I have a garden in my backyard and uh, there have been lots of flowers this summer and when I do the floral based paintings, I'm not trying to make a painting of the flower, but I am relying on, you know, the color and the feeling of that flower. And that's the inspiration for the painting. And then I interpret it with my mark making and the, the structure that 
I work with. So in, in terms of where you're at, in terms of, I guess, 2020, you know, we're in this weird mode. Um, are there any mm-hmm. things that you're, you know, kind of working through uh, in, in terms of maintaining your, your studio and keeping conversation alive? Again, since we can't mm-hmm. all just show up at an opening and hold hands or... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's been really tough. So uh, one thing that's been really important to me over the years since I graduated is uh, I, belo- I belong to a couple of different artist groups. And a very important one to me is a group called the Lady Minimalists Tea Society. And uh, we meet monthly in each other's studios and look at new work, get feedback. We occasionally show together. And uh, we haven't been able to meet in person, which has been disappointing. However, we, we are still meeting via Zoom together, and uh, we're really looking forward to, to starting our studio visits back up as soon as we can. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of that. You know, I've got my mm-hmm. own little Zoom uh, graduate school mm-hmm. friends group, <laughs> support group, <laughs> or, you know, just to kind of keep each other in check and to show what's going on. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And remind everybody, too, where are the best places to, to find your work and to, to check in to see what you're doing? Sure, sure. Um, the best place to find me is my website, which is jillchristian.com. And I am also on Instagram. And uh, my Instagram handle is jillchristianstudio. And so there I post some in-progress work and new work that I have going on in my studio. And I guess just because I don't want to leave anything out, is there anything that you're particularly excited about, you know, sharing with, you know, your, your groups and what you're working on now? Yeah. So right now that I'm, you know, stuck at home, like many of us are, (laughs) I uh, am working on a large triptych and it's going to be about 108 inches and it's the biggest painting I've ever attempted, but I thought this was a really, really good opportunity to take on a large project like that. Yeah. It seems like a nice uh, endeavor considering, you know, the, the circumstances that we're Mm -hmm. all in, you know, like a real almost physical challenge too, at that scale. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, very exciting stuff. Again, I I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to, to talk to me about your work and, you know, it's been interesting to hear and see, you know, all the, all the changes along the various bodies. So again, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Good to talk to you. Thanks once again to Jill for joining me. Go to her website, check out all of her work, jillchristian.com, and be sure to follow her on Instagram at jillchristianstudio. You can also find a link in this interview to theladyminimalist.com to check out what's going on over there. A quick reminder again that our 2020 Pro Competition is now open. Our juror, Liz Tran, will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition is open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. Again, the deadline for this is November 1st. 
If you like today's episode, visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the episodes that you've missed. We've got a big archive, and each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course you can listen right there in the default player, or click those links to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Google. I would note that you can find a huge archive there, right? Episode 236 today, so you've got plenty of listening to help fill the studio, and of course it's always nice when people share this and or the competition or anything like that earns you some karma points so please be sure and do that as well and of course you can always say hello you can find us on facebook so please like us there you can follow us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram at studio underscore break i'd like to thank skylar mail who provides the music to studio break you can check out his work at skylarmail.net if you want to see some of my paintings visit davidlinaway.com and of course you can find me on facebook or follow me on twitter or instagram at davidlinaway and of course it's always great to hear from listeners especially if you enjoy this podcast so please say hello i hope that you have a very productive studio we'll talk to you real soon